So what I want to do is, uh, for this section, now, you know, one of the things, I guess with one of the questions someone asked about, um, you know, the actual gospel presentation, uh, one of the things I'm trying to do is I realize that most churches, people, at least Christians, should know what the gospel message is, okay? Um, but most of the problems that people have is the fear, and that's what I want really to cover and, and to help you with is overcoming the fear, disab- you know, disarming those defenses, and then how to answer objections. That's, that was, that's really the goal of what I want to try to make sure that you guys have. The gospel message... Well, you heard it over and over again in the presentation in the spiritual transition games. And so there it's going to be, you know, basically it's taking someone to recognize they're a sinner. They can't save themselves. Their works don't count. We're only saved through Christ. I mean, that's, that's what we need to communicate to them. Um, and that it's Christ alone. So the thing, though, is, is that we often get objections. So... I want to see how, how good I am and see if you guys have objections I don't have in my notes. We're going to see, because basically, well, there's not too much that you actually need to know for objections. So what I want you to do is I want you to give me some objections that you've heard or been struggled with or you think could be a struggle, and let's see if, if in some form that I already have prepared for that, because the reality is there's only about 10 to 12 questions you actually need answers for. And we think there's so many things we don't possibly know. Actually, they all fit into a couple of categories. So what are some objections you guys have heard? Okay, so I don't believe in the Bible because the Bible's been written by man and man corrupts things. Okay. Who made me the expert? That one will be new. Carbon dating. Okay. That's going to fit into a broader realm of science and, and whether there's, you know, the, really that one's getting into the age of the earth, which is, you know, do you, so that fits under the do you really believe in six literal days question. Why would God set this all up if you're just going to go all wrong so nobody has to fix it? Okay, why would God set this all up if everything's going to go all wrong just so he has to fix it? Okay. And the, Okay, if there is a, a God, and that, let me put the wording that I have in it, and we'll start with that one. How could a good and loving God allow evil? It's one of the first ones that come up. Um, what else? Yours, by the way, is the number one question that we have to deal with, and that's why we'll spend a little bit more time with it. Not, not yours, sorry, hers. <laughs> the question of whether we could trust the Bible. All right, there's a thousand religions. What makes yours right? I love that question. I'll tell you why in a moment. All right, so let's deal with some of these. Um, How could a good and loving God allow evil? If you remember, I already established, once they admit there's evil, guess what they've also admitted? There's a God. (laughs) They don't even recognize it. And, and the question to ask is, how could there be evil without God? Where do you get your standards to say anything is evil without God? The reason there's evil in the world is not because God created it. God created it good, and this gets into, I think the question was over here too. Um, man sinned. 
Now, here's the thing. We can get into a whole doctrine of, of explaining what happened in the garden, Adam and Eve, okay? Sometimes that's not the issue. But we have an answer for this, and that is that God created Adam and Eve good, but they chose to violate God's law. In fact, what they, if you really look at what the, Satan tempted him with, he tempted him with being like God. What is it that every atheist is almost always upset with about Christianity? That they're not God. When you really break it down, they think God should submit to them. This question proves it. Because they think there should be no evil in the world. And therefore, if God exists, he must obey their standard. See how that... When you think about this, when you step back and look at the premise of the arguments they make, you start to realize what they're really doing. What this question really says is, I want to be God, and I think God should submit to me. Eh, almost sounds like word of faith, doesn't it? <laughs> By the way, if you talk to a Mormon, where is the first time that we're told that men could become like God? In the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Who said it? Satan. Just a simple thing to remind them when they talk about becoming God. It's an interesting question to ask them. Hey, where is the first time in the Bible we see someone mentioning that they could be like God? Most Mormons don't know the Bible, so they don't pick up on that. So the, the fact, if you look at the question, not only does this question require God's existence, for there to be evil, but when you really break it down, the question sort of goes to, you know, someone asked the question, well, who are you, you know, who are you to say you're right? Um, the reality is, is that the atheist or the person making this claim wants to say that they have the right to make the rules for the universe. This question sometimes is, is one that people get afraid of. It's actually Richard Dawkins' key. He was, this is the one that he's the one that really got this popular to say, if there is a good and loving God, how could there be evil in the world? As if a good and loving God would not allow evil. Well, why wouldn't he? Because Richard Dawkins said so? See, the, the thing is, is that they want to say that they're the ones that get to set the standard, not the one who created the universe. My argument is always, I will trust the God who created the entire universe out of nothing rather than you. Because really what it is, is they're proving what the Bible says, that man in his pride wants to be like God. It's amazing how in their, in their attempt to deny God, they actually vindicate the Bible. <clears throat> God doesn't exist. Sorry, God disagrees with you. <laughs> I mean, to make the claim, first off, if you think about it, someone who's going to say God does not exist, well, first off, that would require for you to know everything there is in the universe to know that God doesn't exist, wouldn't it? And if you knew everything there was to know in the universe, what would we call you? God. It is, it is impo atheism is impossible to be true. Because for atheism to be true, to know that there is no God requires you to know everything there is to know in the universe, and that's what we call God. So atheism is impossible. 
That's why they shifted to say, well, atheism is a lack of belief in God. No, you don't lack belief. You refuse to believe. There's a difference. You see, the reality is it's not that there's a lack of belief that they have because they don't have an evidence problem. They have a spiritual problem. See, you can give them evidence all day long. They're not going to believe unless God opens their heart, unless God opens their eyes. So the thing is, and this is the thing to remember when you're sharing the gospel, do not think ever that it is your words that are going to bring someone into heaven. Your words will not cause a person to repent. God may use your words to bring someone to repentance, but God is the one doing it, not your words. So we don't have to try to be crafty with ways we're going to word things. I mentioned here that, to remember that most atheists grew up in churches. Um, when they, they, they think they understand the truths. Now, here's the way it's going to be worded. I get this all the time from people. I used to be a Christian. I never allow that argument. I did a whole series of podcasts on that. Because when they say that I used to be a Christian, what they're trying to do is they're trying to claim that they have an authority to speak on Christianity because they used to be one. I I've had one guy, I used to be a pastor. I've been to seminary. Yes, but you were an unconverted pastor. You see, 1 John says that with speaking of people who used to be in the church and left the church, it says they went out from among us because they were never of us. They went out from us to expose that they were not of us. So when I get someone that says, well, I used to be a Christian, and I know that God doesn't exist, the first thing I'm going to tackle is their hypocrisy. I say, wait, you used to be a Christian? Oh, yes. So your ultimate authority was God and his word, correct? Yes. That's impossible. Because if your ultimate authority was God and his word, then there's nothing that would have convinced you that God didn't exist because he's your authority. If he's your ultimate authority, then he's your ultimate authority. Really what you want to say is your reasoning was your authority, yourself was your authority, and you gave up what you, what you couldn't explain for something you think you can explain. Therefore, you are not a Christian by the definition that God should be your ultimate authority. But if you're saying you were a Christian and you trusted the Scriptures, then you must trust that John, 1 John says you were never a Christian. So now I'm trying to figure this out. You say you trust the Scriptures. The Scriptures say you were never a Christian. Therefore, you must never have been a Christian. Either way, they're stuck. What, why are they doing it? They do this because they want to say that they are an authority in the area of Christianity. Usually you find out they know very little about Christianity. You know, I know some street preachers, what they'll do is they'll try to trick people that do this. They'll be like, oh, you know, the people say something and, and they'll, be like, they'll start trying to challenge them. How many books are there in the Bible? You know, to try to show that they don't really understand Christianity. 
They'll throw out big theological terms. Oh, so you used to be a Christian. Well, what's the hypostatic union? That's okay. Most Christians in churches that are genuine Christians don't know what the hypostatic union is. But if you listen to my last podcast, you would have. Um, just saying, it was only two minutes long. You could pick up the hypostatic union right there. Pastor Jim hasn't gotten to that one yet. <clears throat> oh, sorry. Um, that's true. I will not, I have not admitted to reading any of your books. That is true. I did, okay, so I interviewed Pastor Jim on the podcast, and you can kind of tell already what our relationship is like, right? So I purposely would not admit to having read his books, and it was infuriating him in the interview. He actually said that I was the most unprepared (laughs) person to ever interview him, and I just let it keep going. (laughs) He's saying on his next book he's going to try to get me to write an endorsement so it forces me to admit that I read it. I said, no, it won't. I know what my endorsement is going to be right now. I haven't read it, but I heard it's a very good book. <laughs> I mean, I don't mind if he puts that on. The... <laughs> you know, so if you think about the, you know, break the arguments down into see what their premise is, and, and then you start to see what they're really arguing. When a person says, I used to be a Christian, to argue that there is no God... So you once believed that you, or you once knew that God exists and you had him as your ultimate authority and you completely trusted his word as your ultimate authority, correct? And it's amazing. They always say yes and not realize. You believed so you knew. And now sometimes what they'll do when they realize they get caught is say, well, I used to believe that, but now I know it's not true. Yeah, see, but the Bible doesn't agree with you. God says you were never a Christian. You went out from among us because you were never of us. I'm going to trust God. This is the number one, and this comes in a couple different ways. The Bible was written by man. Uh, Really what this is at its core is this is going to come to the issue of can you trust the Bible? Uh, If you get the book, What Do We Believe?, the second chapter, it's the reason I put that one in there. Most books do not deal, most theological books do not deal with the area of textual criticism. And when they do, it's usually at such a high level that most pastors can't understand it. Okay? What I tried to do was take a very tedious and technical topic like textual criticism and break that down so it's easy to understand. Because this comes in, when they say the Bible is written by man, really what they're saying is you cannot trust the Bible. This is what I do when I get that question. And I usually have a preaching bag, and it has a special something in it. What I will do is I will say to them, as they say, well, the Bible's been written by men. And I say, are you telling me that we cannot trust things written by men? They say yes, but I really want them to commit to this. So I'll ask it like three or four different ways. I'll be like, so you're telling me that because a man wrote something, you can't trust it. That's what I'm saying. So the fact that a human being was to record this and write it down means that it is fallible, flawed, and should never be trusted. Is that what you're saying? Yes. Do you trust, do you believe in Charles Darwin's theory of evolution? They say yes, and I reach into my preaching bag, and I pull out my copy, and I go, that's funny. (laughs) That was written by a man. Everything you were taught was written by a man. Therefore, according to you, you should trust nothing. 
and I shouldn't trust you. You're a man. You see, they'll quickly say, oh, well, no, no. We're talking about trustworthy men. Oh, so the issue isn't that it's written by men. It's now that it's written by trustworthy men. You will see that shift almost every time. Remember we talked about burden of proof? When you show their arguments failed, they just go, oop, look at the goalpost. It's over here. Whoop, it's over here. Whoop, you missed it over here. They do that because they don't want to give up their conclusion. By the way, that's a logical fallacy. It, it is when they start with a conclusion and only accept information that supports the conclusion and ignore all else. It is called confirmation bias. I ignore anything that doesn't, accept, that doesn't teach what I want to be true. Therefore, that's not true. If it supports my case, then it's valid. So what I do is I will get them into the point where they say, well, it's trustworthy men. Really what they'll eventually do is get into this, and some people start with this, is that the Bible is full of mistakes or contradictions. This is what textual criticism is going to deal with. When I get them <clears throat> to this point where they start to argue with me on that the Bible can't be trusted, I say, okay, how about this? How about I explain why the Bible can be trusted, and then you explain why it can't be? Does that sound fair? There's really no choice they have on that one. They have to say, yes, that sounds fair. I like asking that because I actually know this subject, and that allows me to go into talking about something that they usually never know anything about. In fact, when I give them the chance to talk about the Bible and how it's not, uh, how it's not trustworthy, the number one answer I get is, I never read it. I always wanted to get a T-shirt that says, come argue with me for hours about a book you've never read. It would just, you know, like I'd keep a jacket on and whenever that happens, it'd be like, you know, because <laughs> it's all the time. So, so I want to spend a little bit more time on this one um, than I will some of the others, because this is one that takes, uh, that you're going to get almost all the time. Bible's been written by men. The Bible's full of contradictions. The Bible has mistakes. The Bible's been edited. The Catholic Church gave us the Bible. By the way, no, they didn't. We knew the books of the Bible long before Nicaea. Nicaea was discussing some of the other books that people said should have been in. And guess what? They concluded the same that the Christians knew long before Nicaea. So <clears throat> when they argue this, there's, a, there's three areas that we look at with textual criticism. And I'm going to go very high level and not into much depth. But I told you, you can get the, the book, What Do We Believe? and, and get more detail. And if that's not enough, there's more books that I can recommend that others have written. Uh, James White has some stuff on this as well. But here's the thing. What we're going to look at is three pieces of information when we look at this. Geography, number of manuscripts, the dating of the manuscripts. Why those three? So I'm going to start with an example. I'm going to pretend like I have an important letter it's written actually by God, so therefore we don't want to, we, we take this very serious. We don't want to misquote anything or, or say anything wrong. And, and I write a letter to each one of you here. And then you guys all are missionaries and you all go to other places in the world. And you start copying that same letter. And you copy it word for word as you see it. But you see, sometimes I'm a little dyslexic. 
And so sometimes I, I spell something wrong or I mix up the order of words. And so maybe I give Pastor Jim a copy and it has words in a wrong order. And he goes to New Jersey because he, he really loves it there. And so he goes to New Jersey and the rest of you have it without that, that word order change. And you go all over the place. And now we start collecting all these manuscripts from these different areas. Can we figure out what the original wording should have been when we see all over the world, all of your copies have the same order of words except for Pastor Jim's? All the ones copied in New Jersey had the same word ordering difference. Can we assume then easily that it was the one copy in this area in this state, that were all copied from one source, that they had a change of word ordering. Yeah. So which is the right order? Well, the one that we see everywhere else. And that's why the geography helps us. When we see where these changes, and there are changes that you end up seeing where people are copying it, make a mistake in the copying. This is a day before Xerox. Okay, that even dated some. Okay, it's a day before instant messaging. Right? I mean, now copy and paste has a totally new meaning. Cut and paste has no meaning, right? You know, it's like, you know, cut and paste used to be where you took your scissors and you cut and you put paste on the back. Okay. But the, the thing is, is that if you have everybody in one area that has the wording one way and everywhere else it's worded the same way but differs with this one geographic area, the assumption is that one geographic area, someone made a copying error and they kept recopying that. Sometimes they didn't know what the error would be. Let me give you some examples we see a lot of. We see different phrases like Jesus Christ, Lord Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Christ Jesus, Jesus the Lord. There's like five different readings. But it's the same meaning, isn't it? So what you end up seeing is that the first thing we do, we look at the geography of where all the manuscripts are. Another important thing is how many manuscripts do we have? The more manuscripts we have, the better the chance we can compare against and see if there's changes. The reality is we have so many manuscripts now that it's hard to believe that there would be any issues, that, we, that any copying edits that we see, or what's called variances, that would be new. We've seen so many of them because we have so many manuscripts. The latest number that I know of is about 8,000 Greek manuscripts. When you start adding in translations, when people translate, because that can sometimes help in the translations to see how people translated it, you get into like 70, 80,000. By the way, we have several hundred manuscripts that were before Nicaea. That's important for the people who say that they gave us the Bible at Nicaea. That's when they wrote it. That used to be an argument years ago that the Catholic Church gave us the Bible at the Council of Nicaea. Now we have copies that are older. So the number of copies help us because we have more to compare against. If you have, the, if you have something like the Quran, where they say there's only one copy, how do you know that that one was the right copy? You don't. The one I really enjoy is the Book of Mormon. Book of Mormon was copied after the printing press. You didn't have to handwrite it. You would think that Joseph Smith would have gotten it right the first time in a book that he says is the most accurate book in all of history. 
But why, I have a book at home that's this thick with the almost 4,000 changes in the Book of Mormon. <laughs> why would you need to change it? I mean, I can understand where you have copying errors in something hand-copied, but in the age of the printing press, that shouldn't happen. So, so the number of copies helps us to be able to compare. The other thing is how close to the dating. Why is that important? Because the closer the dating is to the original writing, the less chance you have of having changes occur. Changes occur over time, copying of copying of copying of copying. So what you end up seeing there is that when we look at that, when we look at the Bible, we not only have almost 8,000 manuscripts, but we have some manuscripts that date within 20 to 30 years of their writing. That's not enough time for all the changes to occur that they claim. Now, here's the thing. When we look at these variances, we put them into two categories. They're either meaningful or viable. So let me explain those. Meaningful means that the meaning of the text actually changed. Okay? And we, can't, we don't know what the original meaning was. Viable talks about the fact of can we get back to the original reading. So in other words, if I was, gave Pastor Jim the, the, this um, you know, letter that he copied, and on his, I spelt little, L-I-T-T, L, but I forgot the E. Well, it was silent anyway. Could we figure out what it should have been? Yes. So things like spelling errors, we can get back to the original. Okay? So we look at whether we can get back to the original. So ones where we can get back to the original, guess what? That's not a big deal. Right? Because we can get back to the original, not a problem. Meaning hasn't changed, no big deal. There's some where we, the meaning changed. So we, we don't know what the meaning originally was, but we can get back to the original. Again, doesn't matter, because we can get back to the original. So whether the meaning changed or didn't change, 75%, by the way, are in the category where the meaning doesn't change and we can get back to the original. Those are mostly spelling errors, uh, punctuation errors. I always laugh at the punctuation errors, because there was no punctuation in the originals. So 75% fit into that category. Then you have the ones where the meaning changes but you can't get back to the original. Okay, that's 19%. But we can get back to the original. So again, no big deal. Then there's some where we have the meaning hasn't changed, but we can't get back to the original. Well, if the meaning hasn't changed, then we really don't care much about it, right? Because though we don't know the original wording, whether it's Jesus Christ or Lord Jesus or Jesus the Lord... The meaning of the text hasn't changed, so it's really not a big deal if it says, if you say Jesus Christ or Jesus the Lord. That's 5%. So we got 1% left. In fact, let me give you, we use 1% because it's a more conservative number. Speaking with, with Professor Dan Wallace in a class I took with him, I asked him what the more realistic number is. He said the more realistic number for the number of of uh, variances that fit in the category where we can't get back to the original meaning, we don't know the meaning, and we can't get back to the original text, he said is one-fifth of one percent. 
In other words, we can look at the scriptures and say that it is, in, in its meaning, it is 99.8% accurate. I will put those numbers up against CNN any day of the week. In other words, we can trust it. I mean, Bart Ehrman, who wrote a book, if you're going to write a New York Times bestseller, you're going to put your best argument forward, right? Okay, he didn't actually expect it to be a New York Times bestseller. It's just that the atheists and Muslims loved it because he was trying to say that we can't know the meaning of the Bible. And so here's his best argument. He says, we cannot know the meaning of the Bible because it's been changed. And here's his example. You ready for this? You guys better hold on to your seats. This is going to blow you away. Your, your faith is going to be rocked. Ready? Okay. There are some manuscripts that actually say that Jesus Christ was a carpenter. And there's others that say he was the son of a carpenter. <laughs> I mean, doesn't that just rock your whole faith? That is his best argument. You know what? Both could be true. <laughs> he could have been the son of a carpenter that became a carpenter. Could be. That was pretty common. In fact, Bart Ehrman, in the, second, in the first printing of his paperback version, once it became a New York Times bestseller, they wanted to sell it in paperback, and they said, can you write some more, like write in, you know, an epilogue to it. In his epilogue, he made a huge mistake. He said the truth. In the epilogue of the first printing, Bart Ehrman said, with all of the variances we have, not a single Christian doctrine is affected by them. Not one. There's no doctrine based on the fact that Jesus was a carpenter, right? The reality is that, yeah, there are some things that maybe we can't figure out. Maybe I'll upset some of you and tell you some of them. So the story or the account of the woman caught in adultery probably wasn't there in the original. And why do we say that? Well, we say that because we find that account in a couple different passages. It moves around in different manuscripts that we have, and many of the manuscripts that are older don't have it at all. The ending of Mark 16, if you look at where many think that it stops, it stops very abruptly. At the beginning of Mark 16, it's just boom, done. There's actually manuscripts we see where there's three different ways that it ends. So those are, might have been added on, but none of those, there's not a single doctrine affected by that unless you're a snake handler. I mean, if you want to, you know, drink poison and, you know, play with snakes, maybe it's affected. But you see, when we look at that, their biggest argument that they make is based on ignorance. I love when I was on, on a boardwalk once and this guy, he, he actually had read some things of, you know, some of the liberals. And he said, well, what about Q? Anyone hear of Q before? Okay, Q stands for coelum. It's the word for source. Q is the fictional document that they say originally was the first gospel. They built this whole thing. And it says that, they, that Q is the first gospel, and in Q, Jesus was just a man. But Mark took from Q and embellished a little bit, and he kind of made Jesus a little bit of God. And then Matthew and Luke worked off of Q and Mark and kind of made him more of a God. And then many years later, John wrote, and now Jesus is fully God. There's a problem with that, and, and I loved, there was a, a Muslim who claimed he converted to Christianity, and now he's an atheist, um, who wrote a New York Times bestseller called Zealot, and he tries to argue for Q. His whole book 
is arguing for this whole thing that we, you know, we can't trust the original, uh, the, the Bible we have because it was really based on Q and it was manufactured and embellished and all this. You know what the whole problem I have with that? And I, I quote this in my book. In the beginning, in his introduction, he makes one fatal flaw. He says, though we have not found any evidence for Q. In other words, that's like saying, I want to write a New York Times bestseller and I want you to accept the fact that I'm saying all this based on my fairy tale. Because Q doesn't exist. We have no evidence Q exists, but I'm going to base everything on a document that doesn't exist. Yeah, I had a guy on the street, on the boardwalk, that tried to bring up Q with me, telling me how, but there's Q. We, don't, we haven't found Q. I said, you know why we haven't found Q? Why? Because it never existed. Now, here's the argument. They'll say, but it had to have existed. Why did it have to exist? He says, it had to exist because you have Matthew, Mark, oh, sorry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, that all have similarities in them, and therefore they must have gotten it from a single document. I said, really? Now, this happened to be right after Obama uh, had his, the DNC's uh, for his second term, and he had just given his speech that, Tuesday, that Thursday night, you know, for, for the convention. And so here he is. He's giving a speech. I said, you know, Obama just gave his speech. Do you think that the New York Times covered it? He goes, yeah. I said, what about the Washington Post? Yeah, how about the LA Times? Yeah, do they have similarities? He's like, I'm sure they would. Do they have differences? Well, yeah, because they're written by different people. But why would they have the similarities? He goes, well, duh, because they were there. That's right. You know why Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have similarities? Duh, because they were there. So easy to answer, actually. All right. The church is full of hypocrites. No. The church is full of people that say they're sinners. When sinners act like sinners, that's not hypocritical. Uh, Christians are judgmental and intolerant. Really? Wait, you're telling me I can't speak about this because you don't like it. That's the opposite of intolerance or, or of tolerance. Some people will say my sin's not that bad. I dealt with this one earlier. This comes up a lot. God forgives sinners. Just, hey, I should be forgiven. Um, yes, he does forgive sinners, but not all of them. Does God hate homosexuals? Well, I just read Romans 1 to them. It's typically how I deal with it. One of the more difficult things to deal with, though, is dealing with a false convert. And what was, your, what was the one you brought up? The thousand religions, right? Let me get to that before I deal with false convert because I want to make sure I deal with this. So how many, how many people believe there's a thousand or more religions in the world? Raise your hands. How many think there's more than a hundred? How many believe there's only two? I do this all the time. There are only two religions in the entire world. That's it, two. Religion of divine works and a religion of human works. And that's it. Now, let me give you an objective standard, not a subjective one, an objective standard so you can compare every religion to it and you can see whether it's man-made or if it's divine. Sound good? Okay, here we go. What do we know about human beings? Really simple. 
People love to praise themselves, don't they? When a king goes to war, when he loses the war, he'll come back and praise the battle he won, won't he? I mean, that's the thing we know about humans. They always praise their own goodness. They always talk about how good they are, and they're always going to add what they do as the, the ultimate thing. So basically what we know is if a, a man-made religion is always going to have some level of human effort to getting right with God. So now that makes it easy. All we have to do is look at every religion that adds human works in some form to getting right with God, and we know it's man-made. Then we just got to look for the ones that have no human work involved. That's the divine one. And wouldn't you know it? There's only one that fits in the divine category. Every other religion fits in the category of human-made except Christianity. Okay? Uh, when you're dealing with a false convert, I, I dealt with this a little bit already, never accept their argument that they were once a Christian. Okay? If, if they are saying they are a Christian, I get people all the time that will say, well, I'm a Christian too. Now, I started to do a new thing. Um, Josh Bice, I picked this up from him. Uh, he, he or, no, it wasn't him. It was, um, oh, who does the what videos? Gabe, Gabe Hughes. Yeah, it was Gabe Hughes when I was interviewing him. He, he says, he gets people that says, well, I go to church. So he says to him, oh, really, what church? Oh, First Baptist Church or wherever. He goes, oh, so if I call them, they're going to know who you are, right? You're a member there? And he goes, yeah. Then all of a sudden they go, well, I haven't been there in a couple of years. How many years? Uh, like eight or nine, right? <laughs> That's fun to do. You know what I do when I get people, well, I'm a Christian too. I'll ask them this. I say, well, how many times a month would you say you read your Bible? The answer usually I get is about four or five. And I say, okay, I want to put, give you a scenario. You, you say you have a relationship with Jesus? Oh, yes. Okay, let me, I just want to put this as a scenario. Um, so let's say you get married. You go on your honeymoon. Come back from the honeymoon. Your spouse says, oh, that was a great honeymoon. I enjoyed that so much. You know, I'm going to go back to my place. I'll give you a call maybe four or five times a month. I had one lady go, I kill him. <laughs> I said, why? Don't you have a relationship with him? I mean, he's, you're talking, he's talking to you four or five times a month. She goes, that's no relationship. I said, let's get back to your Bible reading. Oops, they don't have a relationship. They want, to, they want to pretend that they do, but they don't. So those are some of the most common ones that you're going to deal with. Um, let me give you, uh, in, in Anthony's book, On the Origin of Kinds, he has, I think, two chapters devoted to it. I just want to check to see that I'm not going to be misinformation. Uh, he'll also, by the way, he'll deal with carbon dating, um, which is always fun. Yeah, he has two chapters, Biblical Challenges, uh, Basic Challenges, Part 1 and 2. Um, he also will deal with the creation science in here, the, the dating methods, and show what the problems with dating methods. I love when they bring up carbon-14, and I say, wait, you're saying that we can use carbon-14 to prove that the Earth is millions of years old? Yes. Do you know that carbon-14 can't date past about 36,000 years? How do you prove millions of years with carbon-14? Oops. So... There's a whole bunch of flaws that they have in there that they don't want to admit. Um, and so that would be a good resource for... So 
If you get uh, on the origin of kinds, that's a good one. It's going to go into more depth on some of the, these you know, objections that people give, some of the carbon dating stuff that comes up. Now, I'm going to try to end a little bit early just because of the fact that I see these wonderful kids lined up in the back. Now all of you are going to go, look, see, look, you just, you did, you just couldn't help yourself. I knew it. So, <laughs> so what we want to do is have them come in. But before we do it, here's what I want to do. I want to just give a, a plug. One of the things we're doing at, at Striving for Eternity, um, one of the new things I mentioned, my, my podcast, Rap Report, which how many of you have now subscribed to that? Where were the rest of you last night when I said, look, we discussed this. I don't know if you have to listen to the rap report to get into heaven, but why are you taking the chance? Come on. No, um, we are starting up something new. At Striving Fraternity, what we are about is promoting others, okay? We're, we have this really strange idea of discipleship and like acting like Christians, it's crazy for Christian ministry. And so what we started up, because we want to help promotion of others' ministries and not our own, we're starting up a Christian podcast community. That's actually a podcast that you can download, and you'll get all of the different podcasts in one feed. Um, soon, we hope, someone else will be finally podcasting again. I'm waiting for a head nod saying, yes, I will record. Uh, we just set up some equipment for Justin. How many people have been missing him podcasting? Jim, you didn't even raise your hand. That was like a half raise. So hopefully Justin's going to start podcasting again, and he's going to be on the, on the, in the community with us. Um, if there are any folks here that have a desire to podcast or know of a good podcast, you can let me know. Um, but what we're trying to do is create a community of Christians, Christian podcasters, that can produce good Christian podcasts. And we're hoping is that you could listen just to the Christian podcast community and get a whole bunch of podcasts, you know, where you just really just need to listen to that. No. Um, but really, it's, I mean, we want to provide a whole bunch of good content for you of, of different types of podcasts. And so that's something new that we are working on. And uh, we're hopefully uh, be able to get Justin on you know, next month, I'm hoping, but uh, maybe, when do you get back from Israel? Okay, so maybe it'll be December before we get, <laughs> yeah, so maybe, maybe Pastor, you know, Osman would, would start one. Your daughter's going like this, you don't see that. I, I'm thinking if we get you and Josh, it could be a comedy show. <laughs> I think others agree. <laughs> so, so I encourage you, if you, if you want to more, you know, download the rap report. You can subscribe to the Christian Podcast Community. Uh, it's just some of the things that we're trying to do. Um, we're gonna, we're, I guess we're going to take a break when the, as the kids come in, or are they? Okay, so they come in. Or, so we'll bring them in now then. <laughs>